Well, I do hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. And with all that good food there, that none of y'all became the stuffed turkey this year. But you just had a good time with family and friends. But sometimes that can happen, you know. You get all this stuff and all the good food is sitting there and you start digging in. And before you know it, you got a stomach ache and you don't really realize what you signed up for. Uh, same thing can happen at Christmas time, you know, this season, as you go out and you buy gifts and everything, and you get all these gifts for people, you find those perfect gifts, and you just got to buy it. And then the next thing you know, you're still paying off. I read that nearly 30% of Americans are still paying off Christmas from last year. But that happens sometimes, right? You, you, you just sign up for more than really you bargain for, and you're in over your head a little bit. Uh, we've all probably had experiences like that, where we, we think we're signing up for something and then we get into it and we realize, oh boy, this is a lot more than I was bargaining for. You know, when I was in high school, you know, part of our high school youth group, and um, we had a, a thing there called the, the student leadership team. And when I was a senior, I was asked, along with one of the girls in the group, if we'd be like the leaders of the student leadership team. And so I agreed, and I, you know, I didn't really know what I was signing up for. We, we got to help plan out events and activities, and that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. And then one Sunday morning, our youth pastor was out of town, and the person who was supposed to be filling in for him that Sunday, he was sick or something, and one of the youth leaders came to me and said, hey, Steve, um, you know, Rob's out of town, and the other guy, he's not able to do it, so you've got to give the lesson this morning. And I kind of laughed a little bit, like, okay, you know, that's, that's kind of funny, but, but no. And he said, no, seriously, this, this is what leadership is all about, and you signed up to be, like, on the leadership team here, this is what leadership is about, you've got to give the lesson. And I thought, I've never given a lesson in my life, and you want me to stand up here and give some kind of lesson in front of my peers when I haven't even pre prepared? you you got to be kidding. He said, no, you, you're up, you're on. And so I got up, and I did something, and it went about as poorly as you could imagine. And I said to myself afterwards, well, I'm never doing that again. And here we are. So... Um, but we do have moments like that in life, don't we? Where we just sign up and we're in, we think we're signing up for one thing, and next thing we know, we're, we're in for something a whole lot more, and especially this time of the year. You know, Christmas time, it's a great time, it's an exciting time, it's, a, it's, it's an energizing time, full of lights and sounds and time with family and friends, and, and there's parties and there's events and there's activities and there's so much, there's shopping and food to make so much going on. But it can also be one of those times where we look at our schedules and they're so busy and they're so packed with different activities and parties and everything that has to happen. And we can say, I don't, I don't know that I have room to add a whole lot more to this. My, my schedule's full to get everything done between now and December 25th. I don't know that I have room for one more thing. It's funny, isn't it? When we think back to the birth of Jesus and how he was forced to be born in a barn in a cave because there was no room in the inn? This Christmas season, we're going to consider our inn. Is, is there room in, in our inn for more Jesus? What, what if knowing Jesus better this Christmas season forced you to let some things go? Forced you to, to, to let go of some stuff? Well, what if your grip on life is so strong, you, you don't know what you'd give up 
That, that's kind of what we're going to be talking about these next few weeks. What if really following Jesus didn't, didn't require you to give up something, but it required you to give up everything? That's the question that comes in Luke chapter 18. The 18th chapter of Luke's gospel, that's where we'll be this morning, verses 18 through 25. It's the story of the rich young ruler. And as an aside, we, we as a church family, we want to come alongside you and help you make sure you have room for more Jesus this Christmas season to really get the most out of uh, your relationship with Jesus to grow deeper and to help you lead your family to grow deeper in, in your relationship with Jesus. So if you have not already signed up and you're not already a part of our church email list, I encourage you to just sign up this morning because this week we'll be sending out a link just for a, a devotional that you can walk through with your family this Christmas season and, and it'll be a great time. So I encourage you to get that, look for that email this week so you can um, get that devotional. But to set Luke chapter 18 up for you, you need to know that Luke includes this passage of scripture where Jesus is teaching about how to, how to relate to him, about how to, how to talk to him, about how to have a conversation with him, how to, how to pray with him. And so right in the middle of this chapter, Luke includes the story of the rich young ruler. And you need to see how Luke lays it out, okay? You need to see the broader context. Uh, Luke begins with Jesus teaching uh, this parable of the per persistent widow, okay? It's this lady who just keeps on coming to this evil judge, and she's just not going to go away. She's going to make sure that this guy hears her plea, hears her case, you know, this woman of no standing, she's determined that she's going to be heard by this evil judge. And so Jesus talks about the strength and the persistence of prayer. That story is followed by the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in that account, you have the tax collector who falls to his knees and, and can't even look to heaven and just said, Lord, have, have mercy on me. And that image is contrasted with the Pharisee who's standing and he's all proud of himself and he's extolling his own virtues. And you've really got this image of someone who can't even look to heaven and someone else who's basically praying to themselves. And when you're the biggest God you pray to, you know you have issues. Then following that story is where Jesus invites all the little children to come to him. He says, come to me with, without inhibition, just come. Let, let the little children come, let, let them come. And so here's, here's the children coming. Are you starting to see a pattern? You see this, this good example of the persistent widow and then a bad example of the, of the Pharisee and then a good example of the children. And now comes the story of the rich young ruler. Following that story, following the story of the rich young ruler, you get Peter. And Peter says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And then Jesus teaches, and he teaches on his coming crucifixion. And he says, hey, here's, here's what's coming. People aren't going to believe. They're, they're going to mock me. They're going to they're spit upon me. They're, they're, they're going to shamefully treat me. I'm going to be flogged, and I'm going to be killed. And then after that, Jesus concludes... Or Luke concludes chapter 18 with Jesus walking through the city and there's the blind man 
who just will not be quieted. And he cries out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people are coming around him and saying, hey, be quiet, be quiet. Jesus doesn't really have time for you. You need to pipe down a little bit. You're disturbing things for the rest of us. He doesn't have time for that. And this man will not be quiet. He screams even louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Do you see the pattern? Get the good example, the bad example, the good example, the bad example, the good example. Boom, 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 boom. And so it just starts to get in to your head. Okay, he's teaching about a right way and a wrong way to approach Jesus. And so as we come to the middle story here, this, this account of the rich young ruler that Luke knew about, and he just puts into the 18th chapter of his gospel, what is it about this account it's going to teach us about how to relate to Jesus, about how to approach Jesus, about how to have a conversation with Jesus, how to pray about the cost of being a disciple. Those are, those are some of the questions that we consider this morning as we think about our end and how much room we have for Jesus. Let's read this very familiar passage of Scripture together. Luke 18, verses 18 through 25. And a ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have. And distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know something else interesting about this passage? This was the popular giving passage in the early church. This account uh, was the popular, the popular story that was told in relation to giving. Many have rightfully noted that tithing is not mentioned in the New Testament. There's no 10% requirement. That, that is true. And so the early church picked up on two stories. The early church, it, it chose this story, and it also chose the cross, that you should have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus, who being equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead emptied himself. That was the New Testament pattern of giving. Now, where did the 10% come from? Well, the 10% came from the, the, a lot of the early Christians. They were Jews, and they, were, they, were, they just took over with them the Old Testament law that said, hey, 10%, that's the requirement, that's a tithe, that's what you give. And so this was the custom. And so they tithed according to the Mosaic law. And the early church said, well, that's a good start. But it was looked at as minimalist in the early church because Jesus always raised the bar to something higher. You know, the the Mosaic law, don't commit adultery. Jesus raises the bar and says, no, don't even look at a woman lustfully. The Old Testament law says, hey, don't murder. Jesus said, no, 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 you got to take it a step higher. You can't even hate somebody. 
Old Testament law, don't steal. Jesus says, no, 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 you, you can't be envious and jealous of what other people have. He always takes it higher. And so the, the early church, they said, you know, when you stand before a Savior who gave everything, and you stand at the foot of that cross where God, the, the Son, Jesus Christ, gave everything, you're not going to debate percentages. And so the story of the rich young ruler. And you see this guy, I think if we were to meet this guy today, like if he were to show up, I think we'd really like him. I think he'd be the kind of guy that we'd enjoy being around. In some respects, I think we might even want to be like him. He's respectable, you know. His, his account is told in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And from each of those gospel writers, we learn a little different nuance of the story. We learn from Luke that he's a ruler. We learn from Matthew that he's young, from all of them that he's rich. And we'll get to uh, one of the nuances in Mark in just a little bit. But in Luke, we have this rich ruler. He's a rich ruler. He's a man of authority. He's a man of standing. He's a man of character even. And he's accustomed to being in a position of power and influence. And in, in, in conversation, I'm sure that people would validate his life. You know, I'm sure they would come alongside of him and they would tell him how successful he is and how much he has achieved and how well he's done for himself and what a good guy he is. You know, in, in some ways, I'm sure he probably thrived on that. I'm sure he probably lived on that. You know, he could say to himself, look at all that I've built. Look at all these people who, who look to me for advice and for, for wisdom. And, and I've built all this, and I still haven't lost who I am. You know, I'm still the same guy. I'm still the same moral man I've always been. Maybe in his house somewhere, he had one of those ego walls, you know, you know? It was just full of his degrees and his certificates and letters of appreciation and notifications and special announcements from leading politicians. You know, maybe he had one of those ego walls in his house where he could look at it and he could say, oh, you know, I'm well connected. People like me. Here's what I've achieved. Here's what I've done. Now, I'm sure people would have wanted this man's endorsement. Sure, they would have wanted this young ruler who's powerful and, and authoritative to say, yeah, I, I put my stamp on that guy. They, 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 they want this man to be behind them. And so he's got all of this reinforcing what a good guy he is. And he is a good guy. Make no mistake, he's a good man. Many of us, we'd be happy to have a man like this for our son. You know, we'd be happy to have a man like this as our grandson. We'd be happy to have a man like this in our family a son-in-law, that this, this is a good man. This guy has it together. He's a moral man. He's a good man. Jesus even told him that, you know. And this man, he was obviously schooled in the school of social graces. He was a gifted conversationalist. You, you picked that up from the story. Did you see how he begins? He begins by flattering Jesus, a good teacher, Good teacher. Jesus calls him bl his bluff immediately. Why do you call me good? Are you, are you just adding this adjective in front of the word teacher? Because a lot of people call Jesus teacher, you know. A lot of people call Jesus rabbi. But this man takes it a step further. He says, good teacher. You're a good teacher. But here's one thing we see in the Gospels. It's not all the time. It's not 100% of the time, but a lot of time. 
you look at the way people who believe and how they approach Jesus and people who don't believe and how they approach Jesus. And people who don't believe, they oftentimes in the Gospels come up to Jesus and call him teacher, rabbi. And people who believe, they often approach Jesus and they often call him Lord. There's a difference. And this man is saying, oh, you're a good teacher. But he's not calling him Lord. He said, hey, teacher, I'll listen to you. But I'm going to limit the authority that I give you in my life. Maybe you can teach me something about religion, something about morality. Maybe. But I'm limiting the authority that I'm giving you in my life. Even though you may be a good teacher. And Jesus calls his bluff, Right? Why do you call me good? Are you calling me good just to flatter me, just to try to butter me up the way you maybe do everyone else? Or do you recognize that there is only one who is good, and that is God alone? Do you recognize this about me? Do my words carry the same words as God's words in your life? If I tell you to do something, are are you going to listen? If I correct your behavior, are you going to make an adjustment? Why are you calling me good? And as the young ruler is dealing with this question, Jesus just moves right on to the next statement. And Jesus said, are you familiar with the commandments? And then just to make, make sure, he lists some from the second half, the, the commandments that relate to how we deal with others. And he says, you know them, don't you? Do not murder, do not, do not commit adultery, do not lie, honor your parents. And the young man says, yes, Jesus, I, I've kept all of those since I was a boy. You know, since I was taken to the temple and I stood up and I recited my Hebrew scriptures that I had memorized, I was told by my synagogue what would be expected of me as I entered into being, becoming a Hebrew man. And I've kept those commandments. Ever since they were told to me, ever since I recited them, I've kept them. And at that moment in the story, the next thing that we expect to hear is Jesus saying, not so fast. Come on, man, I know you. We expect Jesus just to jump right in and say, not so fast, buddy, I've seen your life. I remember that time when you were 17 and the way you spoke to your parents, that wasn't honoring them, come on. I remember when you started your business when you were 21 and here's what happened. And No, you weren't dealing honestly. You, you, you told some lies there. Come on, you haven't kept the commandments. That's what we expect. We expect Jesus just to confront him and say, whoa, hold on a second. No, 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 you haven't kept them. And then Jesus just lists every time just to remind him, remember this time? Remember this time? Remember this time? All the ones that you broke, all the times you failed? Jesus doesn't do that. He actually does something remarkable. He says, you're right. You have kept them. You are a pretty good guy. You're a pretty moral guy. You have kept the commandments. He doesn't challenge that. He lets this man's answer stand unchallenged. You have kept the commandments. It's amazing. You see, one of the reasons why I think we identify with this guy, why this account has become so popular in the church, is because we can relate. Because this guy is after a contract. You know, he's just after a contract. And most of us, we don't want a relationship, we just want the contract. 
We just want the contract. A contract says you're entering into an agreement with someone. And here are the responsibilities and the requirements and the limitations of person A. And the person you are entering the contract with, here are their responsibilities and here are their agreements. Here's everything that they're committing to. And here's, and here's the contract. You're going to do this and you're going to do that. And sometimes that's what we want with God, isn't it? We say, okay, okay, God, let me enter into this contract with you. Show me in the contract what is the bare minimum for belief here, what, is the, what my responsibilities are to this contract. And I'm willing to do that, okay? If I, okay, I got to show up most Sunday mornings, try to be as faithful as I can there. I got to give my 10%. I got to serve a little bit. And we're good with that. So, okay, I can, I can accept this contract. The frustrating thing, though, is relationships have no limits, you know? Contracts have expectations where you do this, and if you don't, here's the requirements, here are the punishments, here are the repercussions. Relationships, they have no limits. See, Steph can say anything to me. She can ask anything of me. Sometimes it doesn't even have to be a question, you know, it can just be a statement. I can be sitting there, and she can say, the trash is full. Now, I know just by that statement, the expectation. She doesn't have to spell it out for me. She doesn't have to say, Steve, you got to get up. You got to go to the trash can. You got to take out the bag. You got to take it out to the trash can. You got to put it in there. You got to put a new bag in the trash can. She didn't have to say all that. She just says the trash is full, and she has expressed her expectation. Now, I might be sitting there in the middle of watching a game, or I might be in the middle of something. I might be just be sitting and relaxing, and, and I might have other things on my agenda, other things that I have planned, but what am I going to do? I'm going to get up, and I'm going to take out the trash, because it's the relationship. And that's how a good relationship works. Now, if I had a contract, if it was a contract, I could say something like this. Now, Steph, this is the third time this month that you've asked me to take out the trash. And you know in the contract, it specifically spells out that you only get to ask that four times. So you can ask one more time, but after that, it's going to cost you something. Okay, there's going to be some kind of extra charge, or you're just going to have to do it yourself. Because this is what the contract says. But see, we come to God... And we expect a contract, just like this rich young ruler. And we want the contract to say something like, okay, God, you are agreeing to allow me to live a reasonably happy life. That you're allowing me to live, you're going to grant me a reasonably comfortable life. The God, if I mess something up here or there, you know, I'm not intentional, but I make mistakes. And if I, if I mess it up a little bit, you will step in and you're going to help fix things and smooth things over for me at time to time. And God, the day I die, I'm going to go and I'm going to get to live with you forever. That's your obligation. That's your part of the contract. And I understand what's expected to me. I'm going to give you a little bit of money. I'm going to give you a little bit of time. I'm going to give you a little bit of service. But what happens with the rest? We set it aside and we say, this is mine. This, this is mine. I've got so much allotted for you, and the rest is mine. And what is that? 
That's a contract. That's not a relationship. But see, we know it it works the same way in marriage. Any good marriage, it's not 50-50, right? I mean, we all know this. If if you just get in and say, okay, I'm going to give 50%. Here's 50% of what I got. The other 50, that's me. I'm holding this back for myself. I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, the way I want to do it. What happens? There's all kinds of tension. There's all kinds of stuff. And yeah, you can put a contract in there and says, okay, I'm agreeing to this. I'll do, the, I'll do the trash. You do the dishes. I'll do this. You'll do that. And you can come up with a contract. But you know the way a good marriage works is everything I have is yours. And everything that's yours is mine. And I don't hold back. I don't have any, any, any yellow tape that says, no, you don't get to go in this area. This area is off limits for you. This is mine. No, everything you bring to the table, all of your assets, all of your debts, all your liabilities, all your strengths, it's, I get it all. And you get all mine. Because that's how a relationship works. A contract is different. Contract... Here's what I'm agreeing to. Here's what you're agreeing to. And this guy, he wasn't after a relationship with Jesus. He didn't have room for that. He just wanted Jesus' stamp of approval. He he just wanted Jesus to come alongside and say, here's the contract. Signed, sealed, delivered. You're a good guy. He wanted one more letter of accommodation that he could put up on his ego wall. He, He wanted Jesus to pat him on his head and send him on his way and say, yeah, you can trust this guy. He's good. He wanted the authority of Jesus to stand behind everything he was already doing because Jesus was already recognized as this good teacher of authority. Jesus' life, his ministry, it didn't need to be validated by some other outside source. And the young man, this young ruler, he recognized that. And so he said, if I can get Jesus' stamp on my life, you know, if he he can sign something for me, if he can say something for me, this would be good. Sadly, we know, we know a lot of people who come to Jesus the same way, don't we? See, we've, we've taken this, this most beautiful, precious doctrine of the priesthood of the believer and eternal security and once saved, always saved, this glorious doctrine of how God will never lose his grip on those who are his, how he's never going to let us go. Those who the Son gives the Father are protected, eternally secured. And what have we done? We've turned it into a step. We've turned it into this contract. And so these people, with no evidence of ever having lived in a relationship with Jesus, of never having just just given over everything to Jesus, but they point to this time, well, I walked an aisle when I was a child. I prayed that prayer when I was a kid. You know, my mom and dad took me and and I was baptized. (coughs) And so I'm I'm good. God says he owes me now, you know. He's, he, we, I entered this contract with him. And they think now, well, I can live any old way I please. I can do whatever I want because I've got this contract. See, this is a misunderstanding of this precious doctrine because they want it to be a contract. They want God's stamp of approval, his signed, sealed, delivered stamp on their life. And what do they miss? They miss a relationship with Jesus. And in this passage, 
This whole section of Luke 18, it talks about what a relationship costs. The difference between a contract and a relationship. And Jesus says some hard things about a relationship. Did did you hear what he said to this guy? I mean, this is one of the most confrontational moments in all of the Gospels. This is a very traumatic moment. But understand one thing about this moment. Jesus invites this man to be his disciple. I mean, and look, look at this. I want to make this very clear. Jesus invites this man to be a disciple, and he invites him the same way he invited the other 12. This is the same invitation that Andrew got. It's the same invitation that Simon got. It's the same invitation that Peter got. It's the same invitation that James and John and Matthew got. Leave everything and come follow me. And we have the accounts of the other disciples, right? We have their stories. And what do they do? Do they say, well, geez, you know, you're kind of asking a lot there. Everything is a lot. I don't know that I can leave all that, but I'll leave some of it. You know, I can let go of some things. And I'll bring a bunch of stuff with me and then I'll come and follow you. No, what do they do? They leave everything and follow Jesus. And we take this story and we look at it and we say, well, Jesus must mean something different here. I mean, what was his point? When he said everything, he couldn't have really meant everything. he, he, He knew the man's heart, so he was just trying to like prove a point to the people who were listening. Because everything, surely he couldn't mean everything. Except that's the same command that he gave to all the other disciples. Do you want to follow me? Then it will cost you everything. Why? Because that's what a relationship costs. In a relationship, you don't pick and choose and say, oh, well, I'm holding some for me, but here's what I'll give to you. That's not a relationship. That's a contract. In a relationship, here, here's all I've got. Here, here's everything. And so the disciples, when they hear the command, when they get this invitation, what do they do? They leave their boats. They leave their nets. They leave their families. They leave their livelihood. They, they, they leave their destiny. They leave their future. They leave everything, and they go follow Jesus. It's stated in the very next paragraph, right? Peter says to Jesus, he jumps in and explains, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. We actually accepted the invitation that you just gave this man. We've left it all. And we look and we say, wow, that's a hard command. But that's what the disciples left. They left it all. That they actually took Jesus at his word that leave everything and come follow me. Okay, I'm going to do that. That other nuance I was telling you in Mark's gospel, you can look this story up in Mark's gospel. Mark tells us, he adds this, this uh, phrase to it. It says that Jesus loved this man. That that's why he offered the invitation. That's why he extended the invitation. Jesus wasn't angry at this young ruler. Jesus wasn't trying to prove some point to this young ruler. Jesus said what he said because he loved him. I think he looked at this man and he's saying, there are things in your life that you're holding on to and they will not save you. That there are things in your life that you're holding on to that you've grasped a hold of And they're not saving you, they're drowning you. Let them go. 
Leave everything, follow me. I'm the only hope you've got. And this ruler does have this chance. He has this chance to let go of his fame, to let go of his authority, let go of whatever power he's got, to let go of his family, to let go of his wealth and follow Jesus. I mean, you remember the story of Matthew, right? Matthew's sitting there at his tax collector's booth. Jesus walks by. Matthew's rich. He's making all kinds of money. He's got influence. He's a public servant. All kinds of stuff. And Jesus comes by and Jesus says, hey, Matthew, leave all this. Come follow me. What does Matthew do? He leaves all the bags of money. He leaves everything. He leaves his job. He leaves his position. He leaves everything he's got. He says, okay, I'm all in. Let's throw a party. I want to tell everybody that that I'm going to leave it all to follow you. That's what he does. Who would have ever thought that the first thing you got to do to be with Jesus is to let go of everything else? But see, that's what it takes. That, that, that's, that's what it requires. This man hears Jesus and he's heartbroken because he has all this stuff. And we look at it and we read this in our Western American culture and we say, oh man, this was a man of a lot of possessions. No, this was a man who was greatly possessed. You see, he he couldn't make a decision for himself because his stuff had already made the decision for him. And he said, I I got so much, I I can't let go. See, we we, got to get to a point where we realize everything we have is God's. It's not my house. It's God's house. That's why we aim to make it a ministry center. This isn't my job. This is God's job that he's allowed me to have. So I'm going to do it as most excellently as I possibly can to share Jesus and impact people. This isn't my money. This is God's money. And so I'm going to use it however I can to share Jesus and impact people. These aren't just my skills that I just happen to look into. No, these are God's skills that he's given to me, and so I must steward them well. Whatever we had, this isn't just my time. This is God's time that he's allowed me to steward. I must steward it well. Everything we have, because that's what a relationship is, isn't it? In a relationship, you get a call, and it doesn't matter. If the call is important, you put everything down. It doesn't matter what meeting you're in. It doesn't matter what you've got going on. You set everything aside and you go. Because that's what happens in a relationship. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. That's the invitation. And it's the same invitation to us to see our stuff, our lives, our time, our talents as not ours, but his. And we're just stewards. So how do I steward it? How do I yield everything to Jesus? You know, our closets are so full of stuff. Our attics are so full of things that we even forget we have. And we go out this time of year and we buy more and we we buy even more. And our hearts and our hands and our minds are so full that if someone were to walk up to you and say, Hey, here's how you can have some more Jesus. Here's how you can grow in that relationship, we might not even know what to do. 
Where are we going to put them? Where, where are we going to fit them in? Is, is there room in my inn? You see, as we enter into this Christmas season, we, we remind one another again that the Lord has come. You know, this glorious truth that, that God left heaven and became a baby and came to earth, became man. But he didn't just come to make a contract. He came for everything. He came to be Lord, not just teacher. You know, the other day in our house, we were talking about calling 911. You know, when, when do you have to call 911? And have you ever called 911? We're kind of talking about it. And I, I think Bree asked the question, like, hey, have y'all ever called 911? <coughs> and, you know, I never have, and, but Steph has once. And so she's saying, you know, I had to call 911. And it got me thinking, do you know how bad things have to be if you have to call 911? I mean, think about it. How bad do things have to be if you can't get to the hospital, but you have to call the ambulance to come to you? How, 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 how much trouble are we in that without even a call, Jesus had to come to earth himself. How bad is it that God couldn't send somebody else, but he had to come himself? How bad is it? It's pretty bad. And it requires everything. But Jesus came. And like the rich young ruler, sometimes now we feel a little pressure now, don't we? What are we going to do with this Jesus? How does he fit into our lives? Do we, do we just give him a little bit here? We say, okay, I'll, I'll set this aside for you, Jesus. Or do we say it's all yours? Here, here's everything. How, how are we going to respond? To see if Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord, then what about all this other stuff in life that we think is life? It causes us to reevaluate some things. You know, over and over again in the Old Testament, the prophets, they go to the other nations, and they kind of taunt the other nations a little bit, and they say, you know, look at your gods. You have to roll your gods around in a wagon. Your god can't even walk from here to there. You've got to pull them along. What kind of god is that? What kind of God is it that cannot see anyway? And then in the 135th Psalm, the psalmist writes that, um, that the idols of other nations are made of silver and gold. And it says they're made by men's hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. There is no breath of life on their mouths. And then the psalmist writes this, listen to this. Those who worship them will become just as they are. Those who worship them will become just like them. You'll have eyes, but you will not see. You'll have ears, but you cannot hear. There will be no breath of life in your mouth. Why? Because what you're grabbing hold of cannot save you. 
That's how bad off we were. And that's why Jesus came. And the only way to grab hold of this Jesus, the only way to have room for this Jesus, is to let go of everything else and recognize it's all his anyway. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you came. That when it was so bad off, and we didn't even know how to call 911, that God, you sent your son Jesus to come for us. But God, when you're that bad off, you realize just a little bit won't do. Like I can't just give a little over to you and hold the rest back for myself. God, you, you didn't come to make a contract. You came for all of us, for everything we've got, and that is a good thing. God, forgive us when we are more possessed by our possessions than possessed by you. God, possess our souls this season. We give our lives to you this season so that we can share Jesus and impact people, that other people can know that giving up everything to a Savior who loves, to a Lord who leads, is good. And there's no other way to live. So help us to live well this Christmas season. We ask this by the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.